You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Welcome, dear Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Something have you heard of Hamlet's transformation? Is it nor the exterior nor the inward man resembles that it was? Heaven make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him. Aye. Amen. I want to go home. Don't let them confuse you. I am but mad north northwest when the wind is southerly. I know a hope from a handsaw. Exactly. Exactly what? Exactly why? Exactly why what? What? Why? Why what exactly? Why is he mad? I don't know. <laughs> Will you walk out of the air, my lord? Into my grave? Indeed, that is out of the air. Glean what afflicts him. Me? Him. How? Question and answer. So your uncle's the king of Denmark? That's right. And my father before him. His father before him? No, my father before him. But surely, you may well ask. Your father, whom you love, dies. You were his heir. You come back to find that Harley was the corpse cold before his young brother popped onto his throne and into his sheets, thereby offending both legal and natural practice. Now, why exactly are you behaving in this extraordinary manner? I can't imagine. An audience! Tragedians at your command. We can do you rapiers or rape or both. We're still finding our feet. I should concentrate on not losing your head. I like him not. Therefore, prepare you. I, your commission, forthwith will dispatch, and he to England shall along with you. It is an exact command from the King of Denmark for several different reasons, importing Denmark's health and England's too, that on the reading of this letter, without delay, I should have Hamlet's head cut off. I could jump over the side. That'll put a spoke in their wheel. Unless they're counting on it. I should remain on board. That'll put a spoke in their wheel. My name is Gildenstern, and this is Rosencrantz. I'm sorry. His name is Gildenstern and I'm Rosencrantz. We aim for the point where everyone who is marked for death dies. Who decides? It is written. Audiences know what to expect and that is all they are prepared to believe in. What are they? They're dead. (laughs) Wasn't that the end? You call that an ending? With practically everyone still on his feet? My goodness, no! Over your dead body! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. With me, back from the wilds of Ottawa, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Hey, never mind me. I'm just flipping a coin over here. And I just got heads for the 157th time. And joining us again as we delve further into our month of Shakespeare is our friend Ed Pettit. Thank you so much. So happy to be here again. 
This week we're looking at the 1990 film from writer-director Tom Stoppard. Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead. Based upon Stoppard's own award-winning mid-60s play, the film tells the tale of Rosencrantz and Gildenstern, two supporting characters from Shakespeare's Hamlet. We see them as characters in their own right as they interact with the goings-on of the melancholy Dane, questioning the meaning of life and their own existence. Sounds like pretty heady stuff, but the play and the film are clever, witty, existential, and amusing. Ed, when was the first time that you saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and what did you think? I don't think I saw it in the theater. I think I actually saw it on video, so it was probably like 91 or so, back in my movies on... I used to work for Movies Unlimited, the famous video catalog, but I worked in their video store in Philly. That was a great job. That was a job where I used to work from 12 to 9 every day and then come home with like five or six movies and then watch movies until I fell asleep and then, you know, sleep for a couple hours and right back into the video store. And I'm pretty sure I watched it around that time. And I remember enjoying it but um, I tell you, I didn't remember the experience so much until I just rewatched it, and it, and it did bring back that kind of uh, rush of memories of, of discover because I discovered this play through the movie and and was just so completely taken by it, uh, such an enjoyable experience. Have you ever seen the play? I've never seen the play on stage, but I have heard a radio I've heard it done on the radio uh, Stoppard's also written lots of radio plays and it's a play that works exceptionally well on the radio too so uh, the BBC they still do I mean they're, they, they're, they're making radio plays every day over in England still you know original plays and uh, and I've seen I've, I've heard a version of it uh, on the radio and it especially works well on the radio because it's just it, it's just all the words you know I mean that, and that's it, 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 a radio adaptation can just focus on on the words and what they're saying. And as much as I enjoy the film, it's the words that count in this. It's such a writer-heavy film production play. You know what I mean? I saw it on video probably early 90s, and it was during that period where I wanted to see everything with Tim Roth or everything with Gary Oldman. And I went back and I just found my way through all this stuff. And then I found the connection between Stoppard and Terry Gilliam because Stoppard was one of the co-screenwriters on Brazil. And the only thing I remember, which is my earlier reference at the top of the show about the coin, heads, 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 they just keep flipping the coin. Uh, that was really the only thing I remembered until I just watched it uh, in the past week for the show. You have not seen the play either. No, I haven't seen the play. But I have seen various versions of Hamlet. I have not seen this play. I have seen various versions of Hamlet, mostly the uh, Mel Gibson version that was out. When was that? Like mid-90s, I guess? 94 or something like that? It was actually 1990, because the Roger Ebert uh, review of Rosencrantz and Gilderstern talks about the Mel Gibson film. That's right. He mentioned Zeffirelli in there, and I'd forgotten, because Zeffirelli had done... Didn't he do Romeo and Juliet as well? Yeah, and Taming of the Shrew with uh, Burton and uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, and there's also a connection with Zeffirelli, obviously, to our Life of Brian episode, because they used a lot of his sets from the Jesus of Nazareth TV series that he did. You know, I read a very funny quote on Twitter yesterday that 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is to Hamlet as Life of Brian is to the Bible. And I really kind of agree with it. It's kind of this behind the scenes look, you know, running parallel to another story. You know, we run into Jesus once in Life of Brian, and in this one we run into Hamlet quite a lot. And it is kind of the goings on of these two characters who in the play barely in the play they just kind of show up and it's like hey my old friends and they take hamlet over to england and have a letter to get killed when they present this letter to the king and that's really about it i mean there's not a whole lot to these guys and uh i think it was very audacious of stopper to take these two side characters and spin a whole movie whole play into them about them and i really love the way that he kind of puts us together and for me watching it this well first of all the the, the scene that always stuck with me was the uh, the questions game or the tennis match same here and, uh, yeah and, and i clearly forgot tonight as soon as you started asking me to talk i was going to ask you a question and see if you guys caught on and i completely forgot i i love the life of brian kind of idea of looking at it as this you know life of brian is to jesus of nazareth uh, or as is to the bible as this is the hamlet because what is that? It's so irreverent, and uh, the Rose Transgilder is so irreverent. It's irreverent, but reverent at the same time, just as I think Life of Brian is irreverent and also really treats with this subject in a serious way, in a sense. And that uh, the play Hamlet is, I'm not even sure, here, here, here's where I'm going with this. I'm not even sure if you don't know Hamlet that this film is even intelligible. And I'm not the one that to answer. I can never answer that because I know Hamlet so well that I, I can't help but watch it. And I think I know Hamlet so well that I can't see this film as anything but a kind of commentary on Hamlet the whole time. And I would love to know how to watch this film if this film is even watchable without knowing all these parts of Hamlet that this film just takes off on at, at, at in every single scene. There's, you know, it's this deep commentary on Hamlet and also this kind of absurdist humor on Hamlet too. And what I was struck with today is, is how close it was to, to Beckett's plays. And that I feel like I feel like it's a production of Hamlet, but two characters from Samuel Beckett's plays came walking in and decided to be in the play. To um, me, the only way to watch it would be if you didn't have the background in Shakespeare or Hamlet would be to try to watch it like Godot or something, where it's just this bizarro comedy with existentialist asides and absurdism from time to time. That I think when you understand Hamlet and you have, I think at least just even a cursory understanding of what it is, then it opens up levels for you. But if you don't have that, then I think you can only really watch it on the absurdist level. And I don't necessarily know if that would keep you as interested through the whole piece. Because there's all kinds of in-jokes, too, about Hamlet that, you know, just kind of, I mean, that I found funny, and I was laughing out loud watching it, as I should be in a comedy. But I wondered, you know, would I be laughing out loud were I not getting the references to Hamlet? I'm curious if if Hamlet and Shakespeare overall, if there's, you know, I talked to, when we did our um, Satyricon 
uh, episode about the way that Christianity kind of pervades our culture, you know, our, our Western Judeo-Christian culture, and that we just kind of have these stories and this base mythology that runs through our culture, and that even if you're an atheist like me, that you know a lot of these stories and can pick up on the references and know that things like a, a Judas goat or a scapegoat, you know, that they are references, you know, 30 pieces of silver is obviously a reference to Judas and all of these kind of things. So I'm curious how much of Shakespeare is ingrained in our culture because I'm not fully aware of all the ins and outs of Hamlet. I mean, other than the movie adaptation, but you know, when I was in high school and I'm pretty sure pretty much everybody can say this, but I'm not a hundred percent that you probably read at least one Shakespeare play, if not more, and that might have been Hamlet, probably more likely Romeo and Juliet or maybe Macbeth or something. But I, I'm curious as far as how many of those tropes of his stories and his storytelling have kind of entered into our culture. But the nice thing to me about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is that even if you're not that familiar with Hamlet, that they kind of tell you the story of Hamlet at least one or two times through other means while you're watching the film, at least. Like, the there's a pretty much a, a, a reenactment of a lot of Hamlet going on by these actors that we have, and then it's told again as a puppet show shortly thereafter. So even if you're not 100% on what's going on in Hamlet the play, I think that Stoppard is clever enough to give you this kind of cheat sheet with these like mini versions of Hamlet within Hamlet, within Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, and that's not that's not in his uh, play. That's that's one of the the clever things he added for the film. That when the players arrive at the castle, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are walking around, and they notice that they're performing this kind of pantomime version of Hamlet for like the kitchen staff, and 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 they're doing it in a very comic way. And what's interesting too is that they're performing the play Hamlet as the kind of chronologic as the story goes from that moment on, you know, like you don't get the original, you don't get the beginning part of Hamlet scene that goes in the ramparts and Horatio and that kind of stuff. What you get is from that moment on, when I think Hamlet goes out and, and, and is overheard talking with Ophelia by the King and, and, and they kind of perform it from that point on. And while I, I don't necessarily think it's Stoppard saying, well, I need to let filmgoers know what this story is. I just think it's another way of him adding another kind of uh, layer of play within a play, you know? I mean, this is, a, I mean, Hamlet is, is the play that has a play within a play and, and Stoppard, you know, is kind of, has, is a film about his play and within that it's about a play and then he even has actors rehearsing scenes from a play within the play within the film and it's like it's, it's like this movie equivalent of the endless mirrors thing you know you hold a mirror behind you and you look in and you just see forever and that's also a, a, a kind of thematically for me watching it is an illustration of how this film looks at Hamlet. It's it's just kind of en endlessly looking inward at, to the play and trying to 
pull meaning out of it. So I want to kind of pump the brakes just a little bit and kind of start us more. We're, we're doing a Tarantino here. We're starting in the middle and we're going to work backwards a little bit. Let's talk about the beginning of this because you guys mentioned Beckett. And I totally see the beginning of this play as or movie as being very much waiting for Godot as far as these two characters I won't say they're in this, the wasteland, but it's definitely very dusty and aimless, and you really don't know what's going on. It's a little bit of a void, um, or the stand-in for a void, which is a pretty much an endless forest, it feels like. And we start with Tim Roth and Gary Oldman going along here. Oldman is primarily Rosencrantz, and Roth is primarily Guildenstern, though I love that they... That's who they're cast as, but yeah, they don't even know. Right. (laughs) And they switch their names, they'll respond to other names, which is great. I guess it's speaking to that whole idea of the interchangeable characters. To begin starting about the film and how it's set up, it's that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are two characters in this film but they're not quite sure who they are or what they're doing and nobody ever tells them who they you know what they're supposed to be doing and what the kind of plot of Hamlet is so they have to just kind of wander through the film and they and, and from the very start and try to figure out like they talk about where are we going right now right in the beginning oh and then and then uh, Tim Ross says oh the queen summoned us so we have to go to the queen and as if they're just too players who have been kind of told that this is the beginning of your part, but we're only giving you one page of the script at a time. And not only that, we're only going to give you a few pages of the script here and there, skipping out all things in the middle, so you never quite know what your play is about. It's only the pages with your dialogue highlighted on it. Yeah, that's all they get to see. And then we come to Rob's favorite bit, which is the coin. And this is, I I would say, like you guys, the coin and the game of questions were the two things that I remembered the most when I thought about this film. This whole idea of Rosencrantz finding this coin and flipping it and it always coming up heads. And that's their first kind of real clue that there's something not right with this world that they're in. And I like that Guildenstern is trying to be very logical and trying to figure this out. And, you know, it immediately brings everything into question and questions are so important to this play as our words. And just, we immediately get very, very snappy dialogue. And that's the other thing that, you know, like you were saying, Ed, this movie, this play is all about the words and it was all about this dialogue. And I just absolutely love the rhythms of it. I love their exchanges that they have heads weaker man might be moved to re-examine his faith if in nothing else at least in the law of probability heads consider one probability is a factor which operates within natural forces two probability is not operating as a factor three we are now held within un sub or supernatural forces discuss what look at it this way the law of averages if i've got this right means that if six monkeys were thrown up in the air long enough they would land on their tails about as often as they would land on their heads getting a bit of a bore isn't it the bore well what about the suspense what suspense 
It must be the law of diminishing returns. I feel the spell about to be broken. It was such a cool factor, too, to the, to the casting of those two. I mean, they were really on the edge of, you know, they were, they were edgy new actors who were bringing something interesting. And, and I think, uh, had, um, had, uh, uh, Oldman already done Sid and Nancy and, and Tim Roth was doing these kind of great edgy work and these, like, these kind of criminal kind of parts. And they were, they, you know, just a cool factor of having those two actors in there. At the time, it doesn't seem now that they're cool, I think, to most people coming to the film. But that was a big part of the attraction of this film when it first came out, I think. The other thing that I was kind of impressed with, and I know we'll get more into this later, is Richard Dreyfus. And for me, being able to watch Dreyfus in this film and go, wow, he actually is a really good actor. I have a tendency to forget that because I'm more acquainted with, I guess, maybe stuff that he did in the 90s or something when he was just, you know, doing these light comedies or whatever and uh, really didn't realize that he had the range that he had. Yeah, he's somebody that turns me off later in his career and early on, though, and I guess maybe up to this point, too. He does have some really fantastic performances in films. I wasn't that familiar with him at this point, either. I hadn't gone in and seen American Graffiti. I'd probably just, you know, saw him from Jaws, but I mostly knew him as just being completely neurotic from What About Bob and um, that schmaltzy Mr. Holland's opus, and what was that, uh, like Moon Over Paraguay or whatever? I mean, that was just shit. And he had had Stakeout, he had... um you know, like all of these, like, like I said, this like light comedy stuff that just I wasn't interested in. I didn't find it all that engaging. I mean, yeah, outside he's of always a, he's always a Neil Simon actor for me, and that kind of I, I'm just not interested in that kind of comedy. Pulling the pantyhose off of the shower line, kind of thing. I'm not crazy about the arrangements. You're not, definitely not. I'm paying the rent. I will make it a rules. I like to take showers every morning, and I don't like the panties drying on the rod. I like to cook, so I will use the kitchen whenever I damn well please. And I am very particular about my condiments, so keep your salt and pepper to yourself. Plus, I play the guitar in the middle of the night whenever I cannot sleep, and I meditate every morning, complete with chanting and burning incense, so if you've got to walk around, I'd appreciate a little tiptoeing. Also, I sleep in the nude. A buffo. Winter and summer, rain or snow, with the windows open. And because I may have to go to the potty or to the fridge in the middle of the night, and because I don't want to put on jammies, which I do not own in the first place, unless you're looking for a quick thrill or your daughter in advanced education, I would keep my door closed. Them's my rules and regulations. How does that grab you? Tonight's nominees for an outstanding performance in a lead role are Woody Allen in Annie Hall, Richard Burton in Equus, Richard Dreyfuss and Goodbye Girl. Marcello Mastriani, A Special Day. And John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. And the winner is a new heavyweight champ, Richard Dreyfuss! Well, I mean, most people remember him, obviously, from his two turns with Spielberg in the 70s with Jaws and Close Encounters. But I, like I said in here, it's it's interesting to see because he's got – I don't know if it's just he has more to work with than he had in those other, you know, kind of monotone comedies or whatever that I was talking about. But he, he seems to be more together, and th- there's more to do, I guess, and it's quite good. 
I mostly knew him from The Graduate. Getting back to the, the, the whole coin thing, what comes out of the flipping of the coin and the 157 times that it comes up heads is all of this back and forth between them about sort of like what what do you remember like what's your first memory and what's life about and there's like all this which i wrote in my notes i go this reminds me of like and i don't know if every angsty high school kid had these kind of conversations but that scene and there's a couple of other scenes between the two of them between oldman and roth that remind me of the kind of conversations that i would have with my friends at a coffee shop at three in the morning where we would just sit around and we would talk about the state of the world and like well what does it all mean like you know, and, and I don't mean like when you're like baked out of your heads either. Like, I mean, obviously being on a large amount of pot or something can also do that for you. But this is just like, you know, average weekend hanging out. And my friends and I would just go off on these existentialist tears where we would go, you know, really, is there really any value to anything? Like, why are we here? Like, what's the point? You know, and we would like dissect everything for hours where we drink large doses of caffeinated beverages. Yeah, my my twenty two, twenty three year old self or whatever when when I saw this movie was I mean that that coin flipping thing was so profound and it still is in a way but but I I tended to be more impressed by it then I mean and just thinking like well actually no it is possible that could happen it's just the law of averages every coin flip is still a fifty fifty chance and but what would that mean if that kind of happened over and over would that change the way you looked at the world and it does it, it lends itself to that kind of wonderment about existence and the laws of how we're supposed to be alive kind of thing. So, and Stopper just did it so perfectly. And Rosencrantz doesn't seem to care. He's just, he's kind of in awe that it's happening, but Guildenstern is the one that's just like in this crisis. You know, it's like, what can this mean? And Rosencrantz is just there flipping that coin. And at one point, it's like every coin that he flips and gets heads, he gets to keep. So he's just making money. Do you notice how much they change in the picture, too? And that how Rosencrantz, Gary Oldman character, is so kind of dim-witted. And then at one point in the film, all of a sudden, he becomes very profound and he finishes out in this kind of very intelligent fashion for the last third of the film. I think it's a really interesting you know, trajectory for his character and the way that happens. Well, the one thing I want to know if it's in the play, because I read just a ton of dissertations on the play itself that they never brought up was the whole idea of Rosencrantz kind of inventing things and discovering things throughout the film. That's that. Okay. If there was to be a third item that I would remember from this movie, it would be all of the times where he is coming up with these ideas. He notices those, uh, what's that called, the Newton's Cradle, when it's the pots, it's like those, you know, executive pendulum sets that go on their desks, and you, and you knock the one ball, and it knocks the one ball on the other side, and it will, you know, continue, and he notices that with the pots, and, uh, and then one just breaks when he tries to show Guildenstern, and there's another time when the, uh, he notices the, uh, there's a, a little pinwheel made of uh, manuscript pages and a core of an apple, and then he sees the the water boiling, the kettle boiling on the fire, and the steam coming out. He takes it over, and it's this kind of little experiment of hot air will blow this pinwheel. There's also the ball and the feather that, if it were in a vacuum, they would fall at exactly the same speed. You would think this would fall faster than this, wouldn't you? And you'd be absolutely right. 
every time he tries to do it, Tim Roth just ruins it or can't see it. Or, you know, at one point he fashions a paper airplane that looks like a biplane and Roth just takes it and crumples it up. You know, so it never works for him when he goes to show the thing. You know, here's something that's really trippy. Next week, when we do Richard III, the guy that we're interviewing for, the director of Richard III, he invented the Newton's Cradle. No way. Yeah. Richard Longcrane, is that? Yep, freaky deaky. As far as a Shakespeare commentary, since, you know, we're doing a Shakespeare-themed show, I thought the the one example where he finds the, the pinwheel, first of all, it's made of manuscript pages and, um, like, an apple core. And then he puts it on the... And the whole, the whole thing of the experiment is, is like, hot air will, it will, will kind of produce a kind of energy, you know, uh, and we'll and we'll spin this thing. And I thought it was very fascinating the placement in the film of that. That's an addition that's not in the play. And the placement in the film is right after Hamlet has been speaking to them and it gives the great quintessence of dust speech about the you know, the state of man, what is man, nothing but a quintessence of dust and then R and G just kind of look bored and bewildered at each other, which I thought was perhaps a commentary on what most people watching Shakespeare think when they hear when they hear these lines being done. And one of them says half of what he said meant something else, and the other half didn't mean anything at all. And then you get this experiment about hot air producing energy, and I thought that was just a clever little in-joke as well, like, like you know, characters who speak this way are just full of so much hot air, and, and, and a character like Tim Roth can just crumble it up or push it aside and you know, use it for whatever, use the T word for whatever it's supposed to be used for. So, um, and all those little touches all through it are little clever, funny, and, and, and more than just clever, but also profound commentaries on the questions that are asked in, in Hamlet, but just even bigger questions about how we look at a Shakespeare play. So his first invention is of a hamburger when they're back in the forest, and he's even got the little toothpick with the plastic-looking thing coming off of it. Yeah, and that's right before they meet this group of traveling actors, and that seemed to be the one place that was just getting so much attention when I was reading these kind of looks at the play, because, of course, it's speaking directly to the whole idea of what are actors? Are they prostitutes? Because these actors do kind of prostitute themselves. Are actors anything without an audience, which I found to be a very interesting thing, because it also kind of speaks to the whole idea of what are characters without an author? What are they doing when they're not on stage kind of thing? Do we just, do they not exist at that point? You know, because as you pointed out, the whole idea of when they start showing the the play of Hamlet, essentially, is pretty much when RNG join the fray. So it's like there was nothing before that. There was no poisoning of the king or any of the, you know, or the, uh, the ghost and all that kind of stuff. So I find that scene to be interesting, but not nearly as interesting as all of the people that were trying to pick it apart. And especially all of the people that were trying to write about the um, latent or open homosexuality that's going on in the play between <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, between them and Hamlet, between uh, Albert, especially Albert, who's the one member of the traveling band of players who is uh, their female player, um, you know, dresses up as a woman and actually is pretty passable a couple times. But yeah, they were just, the, whoever was writing these um, 
dissertations on the play were just going on and on about that. And I was like, that to me is like the least interesting part of this whole production. And it seems to miss all the humor that Tom Stopper could throw at him. You know, are you familiar with this play? A Slaughterhouse. <laughs> that's what you know, Richard Travis calls the play of Hamlet. I mean, that's, that's really what you're looking at, people. You're just looking at a slaughterhouse and they're constantly making fun. I mean, just all that, that, that idea that there's, there's these, uh, you know, pages of text just kind of blowing around Elsinore all the time. I mean, that's just kind of ephemeral, you know, the idea of, of just the, uh, how ephemeral text is. It's just stuff written on paper that you can make paper airplanes out of, you know, and just blows around and it's just treated like trash. And then there's the extra level of these are all questions asked about stage plays and about an audience, and yet here we have a film, which is not ephemeral, which, which is not performed and gone. It, it kind of exists as a physical object that can that can go through time like a page of a text. Is the fact that, that a film can have continual audiences through videos or through showings in movie houses, and that, that, that it has more permanency than this, than a play. Is, you know, I, I think the movie asks questions about that. And there's never an answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what I love about this movie and, and, and this whole idea that Stopper has put up here is that, that just like reading Hamlet and coming up with all kinds of answers to the questions that are raised in that play, there's never, you can never come up with a definitive solution as to what this is really about. And this film does that same thing. Questions are so central to this film that we have this entire scene of questions. Fancy a game? We're spectators. Do you want to play questions? How do you play that? You have to ask questions. Statement one, love. Cheating. How? I hadn't started yet. Statement two, love. Are you counting that? What? Are you counting that? Foul, no repetition. Three, love. Game. I'm not going to play if you're going to be like that. <sighs> Who serve? Uh, hesitation, loved one. Who's go? Why? Why not? What for? No, no synonyms. What all? What in God's name is going on? Foul, no rhetoric, 2-1. What does it all add up to? Can't you guess? Are you addressing me? Is there anyone else? Who? How would I know? Why do you ask? Are you serious? Was that rhetoric? No! Statement, two all game point. What's the matter with you today? When? What? Are you deaf? Am I dead? Yes or no? Is there a choice? Is there a god? Foul. No non sequiturs. Three, two, one, game all. What's your name? What's yours? You first. Statement. One love. What's your name when you're at home? What's yours? When I'm at home? Is it different at home? What home? Haven't you got one? Why do you ask? What are you driving at? What's your name? Repetition. Two love. Match point. Who do you think you are? Frederick, game and match. Match, 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 match. 
And if you're going to ask a kid in high school, you know, what's the thing that you remember about Hamlet? It's to be or not to be. That is the question. I mean, that is the the central thing of Hamlet, and I love that that is just permeates the entire film and play from there. Because we so we go from. The troupe of traveling actors, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, leave them, and then they're just pretty much mysteriously transported into Elsinore, which makes as much sense as anything else. And I kind of like this, almost like a magical realism kind of thing that's happening with this play. Elsinore, the, the castle itself, is very much a maze, and they're constantly moving. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Oldman and Roth just lost, you know, 20 pounds from all of the running that they have to do in this and all of the walk. They're constantly moving around the sets. There's very few places where they sit down and think about things. It's mostly them walking and looking and spying and trying to figure out what's going on with the play, what's going on with their own existence. At one point, they're given the assignment to find out what's going on with Hamlet. And from then on, it's just more and more and more questions. And everything is this whole idea of how can we figure this thing out? How can we figure out everything? And I love the scene where, where they're trying to basically, I think it's Guildenstern wants Rosencrantz to address him as Hamlet and start asking him questions as if he were Hamlet. And I like that once they finally figure that out, that it only takes about three questions to finally figure out why Hamlet is so upset. Glean what afflicts him. Me? Him. How? Question and answer. How should I begin? Address me. My honoured lord, my dear Rosencrantz. Am I pretending to be you, then? Certainly not. Well, if you like, shall we continue? My honoured lord, my dear fellow. How are you? Afflicted. Really? In what way? Transformed. Inside or out? Both. I see. (sighs) Not much new there. Not going to detail! So your uncle's the king of Denmark? That's right. And my father before him. His father before him? No, my father before him. But surely... You may well ask. Let me get it straight. Your father was king. You were his only son. Your father dies. You are of age. Your uncle becomes king. Yes. Unusual. Undid me. Undeniably. He slipped in. Which reminds well, me... Well, it would. I don't want to be personal. Come on. Your Richard. mother's marriage. He slipped in. His body was still warm. So was hers. Extraordinary. Indeed. Hasty. Suspicious. Makes you think. Don't think I haven't. And with her husband's brother. They were close. She went to him... Too close. ...for comfort. Looks bad. Adds up. Incest to adultery. Would you go so far? Never. To sum up. Your father, whom you love, dies. You were his heir. You come back to find that hardly was the corpse cold before his young brother popped onto his throne and into his sheets, thereby offending both legal and natural practice. Now, why exactly are you behaving in this extraordinary manner? I can't imagine. And that first scene in Elsinore, too, where they, where they, they go into the castle and it's, and it's all the, the walls are completely filled with paintings and murals and even one of the staircases is even painted on the wall the the other uh, railing you know it's not even a real railing and, and again it's this this idea of I, I get this idea of this kind of self-conscious meta commentary on art that, that runs through it that these are characters walking through an artificial world and they're fictional characters and you just we're just constantly reminded of 
this artistic creation that they're within all the time. It's like no matter how many times you go behind the stage, you're always going to come out somewhere in front, whether it's in front of this backdrop or this other one. And it's always just a matter of where you're going to end up. And sometimes it makes no logical sense whatsoever. They'll go in one door and come out almost the exact same door. They're just kind of trapped in this space, which again kind of is this whole idea of just existing for the play and nothing else. We're going round in circles. As characters, they're trapped within a play, but then, of course, it's easy to extrapolate, and it's it's us. We're trapped within this life that we lead, you know, idea that that makes you know that that's the profound side of what they're doing, and it's and it's also very much the the kind of Beckett way of looking at the world too, the way he had his characters perform in their kind of trapped worlds with a commentary on us and Stopper. I did, I did see in an interview that Stopper did say that, yes, he was thinking specifically of Beckett when he was putting this together in the 60s. For me, the film, beyond all the Hamlet and Shakespeare stuff, is is a play about existentialism, which, like I said about the idea of sitting in a coffee shop at 3 in the morning with my friends when I'm 19, 20 years old and just pounding drink after drink after drink and just talking about what's the fucking point and that's the thing that i find uh interesting in this play is that basically they're trying to figure out who they are what they are what it is they're even doing there and i think those are the larger you know the larger themes and larger questions that are in the piece that go beyond like i said any references to shakespeare or any other work in that way well, I want to say that Stopper, Stopper was born in 37, and this play, the first, the early incarnation of it was, I want to say, 64, somewhere around there. 67. It's Edinburgh Film Festival. He writes it, or Edinburgh uh, uh, Fringe Festival in 67. He writes it around 66. Yeah. And he had an early draft that was uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meet King Lear. So it was this whole idea of when they go to England, what is that? exchange like with the king and everything and the play really changed over time i mean the first production of it was you know he, he constantly revised it and even then for the film revised it you know you know for the film as well so that's you know it, it, I, I like it because there's a published text of it that he approved and had published that you can read but there were at least four or five versions of this that had been performed so what I was getting at, though, is that he was right around that same age when he first started writing this that Rob's talking about. I mean, he would have fit in, you know, in his mid latish 20s, pounding those beers and everything and coming up with all this stuff, all of these questions that, you know, Rob's been been asking. He, he Obviously, different pub, different part of the world, different year, but kind of the same crisis that we all go through. And it's the play that made Stopper. It changed his life and made him a real success and enabled him to then pretty much just write what he wanted to write and concentrate on that and not worry so much about, you know, having to take jobs that he knew that he could just create what he wanted to create. It's an enormous, enormous output. I mean, lots of plays and, and radio plays, and I think there's even a couple novels. And he's been able to write so, and, and he's written lots of journalism and and essays, and and he's that kind of 
old school writer that you don't see so much anymore. Where what is he? He's a writer, but he just writes all kinds of different stuff. And now, if you want to be a writer, you really got to you really got to pick something, and not only something, but something really specific, even genre specific, to concentrate on. And Stoppard got to you know like like the rest of the writers up until you know probably the the nineteen nineties was able to just kind of write. I love this whole idea, though, of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meet King Lear. This whole idea, you know, it's it's a throwaway. I mean, it it was probably a one act kind of thing, but the whole idea of what if more than one Shakespeare play were taking place at the same time? You know, while this stuff is happening in Denmark, was Macbeth killing his guests over in Scotland, and was King Lear having his crisis with his daughters? <laughs> you know, it's like, obviously not all of the plays can take place at, at one time. The timeline doesn't match up. But in the, in the kind of, you know, postmodern metafictional world we live in, the authors do this kind of stuff all the time. There's a, there's a really well-done comic series right now called Kill Shakespeare, which kind of mashes all of Shakespeare's characters together in this world that Shakespeare has created. Like, he's the god they worship him as the god of this world. And they, and they have all these kind of adventures and, and, and uh, there's political intrigue and there's a war going on and they all have to fight and it's, you know, Falstaff fighting alongside of, you know, uh, Hamlet. That's not so much an unusual idea now, but in, in the 1960s it was unusual usual to kind of imagine other worlds for established fictional characters, you know, to look behind the scenes at the minor characters and, and kind of extrapolate and make their world. It hadn't become a, I think it was still a, a very unique thing at the time when he first did it. There's another comic series, and it's not Shakespeare-specific, but I would say that they probably have as much headspace in the Western thought, as you know, Mike was saying earlier, is a series called Fables that was created. Yeah. And yeah. it's all the fairy tale characters who you know and how they interact with each other and and try to figure out it's like like when i first read the first uh collected uh graphic novel of it i think it was like the first 10 issues kind of reminded me of in a way kind of like watchmen where it was like yeah we're superheroes but we have like regular life nonsense yeah. that we got to deal with so it's like yeah we're fairy tale characters we have regular life nonsense we have to deal with <laughs> such as uh what is it uh prince charming and i think it's snow white are in marriage counseling, I think, in, at one point. So One of the nice little touches that Stopper adds to this is that his characters, Rosengrantz and Gildenstern, have no memories beyond their own experiences in this play and what they're supposed to be doing. You know, several times they call attention to that fact that they don't know either who they are or what they're supposed to be doing. So, in a sense... They, that leads us to suppose, looking at them, that in, in the film, that they're not real. They're fictional creations. And of course they are, but in fictional works, characters aren't supposed to know that they're fictional. And then they kind of have to wrestle with that. And, and then, again, the bigger picture thing is that's what, that's the wrestling of existence is, you know, what is my life? Is it fictional? I mean, if, if it ends, if this is an existential you know, universe and it ends at death, well, then was my life a fiction just like characters and books that just kind of have endings to them? What do you guys think about the player, the character that Richard Dreyfus plays, 
do you think that he is aware of his own fictional beingness? I mean, is he the guy, is he the Bill Murray of this Groundhog's Day type story where the next time this play gets performed, he has memory of it? Or what do you think about him? I think so, especially at the end, when all of a sudden they show up on the pirate ship and, and they have the whole routine and they're the ones that, you know, hang Rosencrantz and Gildenstern at the end and the, and the exchange that they have at the end. Gildenstern, Tim Roth, Gildenstern says to him, uh, where we went wrong was getting on a boat, which is a hilarious line. And Rosencrantz says, they had it in for us, didn't they? Right from the beginning. Who'd have thought that we were so important? Gildenstern says, but why? What was it all for this? Who are we that so much should converge on our little deaths? And then it's it's the player, it's Richard Dreyfus Carey says, You are Rosencrantz and Gildenstern. That is enough. And Gildenstern says, No, it is not enough to be told so little to such an end and still finally to be denied an explanation. And the player, Dreyfus character says, In our experience, almost everything ends in death. He understands the world that they live in. He understands this kind of fictional world and how you're supposed to behave in it. And and he can't be killed. He tries to kill him with a knife, and it turns out, ah, it's just a stage knife that collapses. You know, he understands that, is that that's the way that they're, they're all just players in this world, at least the world, the form that they're in. And, you know, all, what, we're, what, what, what I think we're led to ask as, as, as spectators of this is, well, are we all just players in our own world then? I think that might be a reference uh, to uh, Macbeth there, sir. Yeah, I, as someone once said that all the world's a stage and we must each play a part. Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Act one was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. And then came act two. You seemed to change. You acted strange. And why, I've never known. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me, and I had no cause to doubt you. But I'd rather go on hearing your lies than to go on living without you. Now the stage is bare, and I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, then they can bring the curtain down. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight? And you'll find that that idea all through Shakespeare. There's several sonnets deal with that 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 same kind of metaphor, and it's and it's in lots of different plays that metaphor. And of course, his you know the the last theater that he worked in was named the Globe. So you know the world they were performing in this theater that is kind of representative of the world. That's what players do. That's who we are. I love all of the well. There's there's kind of the foreshadowing of their death when they are kind of pursuing him through Elsinore, and he talks about all of the different types of deaths that they can do as these players. We can die heroically, comically, ironically, sadly, suddenly, slowly, disgustingly, charmingly, or from a great height. 
and he's looking up the, at them, and there's the banister there, and it's just like, yeah, they could easily swing from that. They have no idea, it seems, that they are watching themselves in this play, even though the characters are dressed exactly like them. They do the panto version of Hamlet, and they say, oh, six people dead at the end, and he's the player says, no, eight, and then they show the two guys hang, and it's, they look just like them. Which I love, you know, going, okay, so now we're, we're back to where we began. I guess we're, rather than Tarantino, we're doing more of a J.J. Abrams thing, where we, we showed a little bit of Act 2, and then we went back to Act 1, and now we're back. So, rejoin where we were talking about this whole idea of showing the play within the play within the play kind of thing. I love that when they are showing this abbreviated version of Hamlet to, as you, you pointed out, the kitchen staff, I never really thought about who are these people. I love that that's one of the two versions that they do without any words. Words are so important to everything that goes on in this play, everything that happens in Shakespeare, and this is the time where there are no words, and we're just seeing the pantomime, and I absolutely love that that's the case. And then we kind of move from that into a few scenes later, a puppet version of it, which also is without words, and even more simplified, and still, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern cannot seem to figure out what they are watching. There's, a, there's a, a, another little commentary on Hamlet criticism in, in that when, when they ask the player why they're doing that little pantomime show of the, of the mousetrap play they will perform before the king, why do you do it without words first and then do it with words? And, 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 and the player goes into this long explanation about, oh, we need to explain it to the audience and all. And that's a question so frequently asked about this play that professors have to answer and that literary critics have to answer. Why does Shakespeare include two versions of, of, the, of the play within the play? You know, first with, with no words and then with words. I mean, and, and, and there's all kinds of crazy answers. Well, maybe this was a draft, and there were two different drafts, and one had, so, you know, that's a, or, 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 or the director, when, when you put it on the stage, you have the choice of doing either one, and kind of scholars have to kind of bend backwards to figure this out, and also he winds up putting that little bit in the film, too. The player winds up having to explain this to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern about why it's going on. You know, I was reminded while I was watching this, you know, we've talked a lot about the whole idea of these guys only exist because of this play. They begin to exist when they're basically called into being by Shakespeare. They end pretty close to the end. The announcement of, of Rosencrantz and Gilderstern being dead is fairly close to the end of Hamlet, if, if memory serves. And I was really reminded a lot of the play um, Six Actors in Search of an Author, which then has been kind of spun into all of these different things. We even talked about this a little bit on the episode we did on Cube, where it's this whole idea of waking up in this space, not knowing who you are, coming to and realizing that you are someone else's fiction. And, um, you know, obviously famously done in the Twilight Zone version of five actors in search of an uh, exit if memory serves it's been a long time since i've seen it but you know just i love that they're playing with this self-reflexivity and you know it's it's not typical as we we're talking about before it's not typical to do this whole um you know cross-pollination of different fictions but doing this whole idea of these self-aware actors it, there is this 
school of thought and there is this uh this theme that has run through art especially in the the 20th century so it's it's um i guess especially with with plays and with uh films and everything um so it's nice that they are kind of bringing that to the fore as well yeah and you mentioned how they mentioned it at, 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 at the end of the hamlet play when when the ambassador comes in from england and announces their death and in my experience that is often a line that winds up getting cut from productions on stage because what almost always happens is you've got this scene with the duel and everybody's dead and Gertrude dies and the king dies and Hamlet's dying and his body's littering the stage and this ambassador comes in and he says, oh, well, you know, then I guess I've come too late. And what I was supposed to say, tell you, was you know, your wishes have been carried out. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And that always gets a laugh because it's this height of absurdity after all, after watching all this. And maybe that's the genesis for stopping realizing that, oh, my gosh, this is a, you know, a great absurd comedy that you could make out of this kind of thing. Because that's a line that always gets, if you've seen it on stage and they include that line, it gets a laugh. And you shouldn't be laughing at that part of the play. <laughs> but it is a line that kind of does comment on the absurdity of death and, you know, at the end of that play. The film, I think, winds up at the end, winds up being all the questions get asked and all, but the film ends about death. And and, and I think I think if, if the film is leading anywhere to making any kind of uh, saying this is a film about this kind of scene, I think by the end it's death. Because um, that's where we end up with, and everything seems to kind of funnel in that direction that we're making a film about death. So first act, all in the Elsinore Forest, outside of, of the castle. Second act, all inside of the castle, castle grounds, let's say. Third act, they wake up on the ship. They really have no idea what's going on again. And that great cut from there, and then all of a sudden they're on the ship, and, and the characters are even like, where the heck are we? As if as if they're in a film, and all of a sudden there was just a cut in the film, and then you're in another scene. Like, they can't understand that. Which I find more effective than bringing the curtain down and coming back up. I, I think that that's one of the places where Stopper really knows how to use film as this different medium from theater, you know, just to be able to just cut like that, and all of a sudden you're in this completely different world. And it's the only film he's directed, and, and uh, I was watching an interview with him and, and he was asked, well, why did you choose to direct this? And, and he said, because I was, I, I realized in the end after coming up with directors that we could ask that I would be the only one because I'd written the play that wouldn't mind cutting the play to ribbons and doing whatever, you know, needed to be done to the text and anybody else might treat it as kind of a little bit sacred. So I could just do what I wanted with it because it was mine. I do like that he admits that it's too long, too, because there are a couple parts in here that drag, especially in the second act. What do you say? It could have been it would be the only director's cut that's shorter than the theatrical if he got to do one. So that, that he could trim it some more. They must have recorded that before the Coen brothers shortened up um, Blood Simple. But to read the play, there's a lot more dialogue in there that he really streamlines into, you know, patter back and forth between Tim Roth and Gary Oldman that he really could have, you know, stretched it out longer. And it's a good thing he did that he understood that he wasn't filming a stage play, that he was making a film. Going back to the questions thing. The questions game is amazing. I absolutely love that scene. But what I love is how they keep going back to that and 
basically Rosencrantz keeps trying to play the game. And then when they finally get to speak to Hamlet for an extended period of time, afterwards they have this little debrief and he's like, we just got trounced. We were asked so many questions. Caught us on the wrong foot once or twice, but I think we gained some ground. He murdered us. What about the edge? 27-3, and you think he might have had the edge? He murdered us. What about our evasions? Oh, our evasions were lovely. You were sent for, he says. My lord, we were sent for. Now, where'd I put myself? He had six rhetorical. That was question and answer, all right. And two repetitions. 27 questions he got out and answered three. I was waiting for you to delve. When's he going to start delving, I asked myself. We got his symptoms, didn't we? Half of what he said meant something else, and the other half didn't mean anything at all. Thwarted ambition, a sense of grievance. That's my diagnosis. Six rhetorical and two repetition, leaving 19 of which we answered 15. And what did we get in return? He's depressed. Denmark's a prison, and he'd rather live in a nutshell. Some shadow play about the nature of ambition. And finally, one direct question which might have led somewhere and led, in fact, to his illuminating claim to tell a hook from a handbag. And so. And so. When the wind is southerly. And the weather's clear. And when it isn't, he can't. Is it the mercy of the elements? And it's also interesting to me that it is words that are really their undoing. It is this whole idea, you know, we've talked about the words on these papers that are fluttering around Elsinore and in the forest and everything. And here we have them with this letter that they're going to present to the King of England that says, as soon as you get this, kill Hamlet, which must be a pretty amazing thing to have, just this piece of paper where it's like, yeah, this guy that, I, <laughs> that I'm with, <laughs> just kill him, okay? And Hamlet dick just sends them to their death. What a dick, you know? It ruthlessly just sends Rosencrantz and Gildenstern to their death, purposefully, you know? He tries to explain, in the play Hamlet, he tries to explain it away to Horatio, but he is ruthless. Does Hamlet know that they know what's on the piece of paper? Do they know what's on the piece of paper when they get it? And that's in, in, in the film, and Stopper has them open it up and see it. And in the play, you never get that idea that they would know even what's there, which makes them even more innocent. That's the one time this whole entire film, they have been acted upon the entire time. They just kind of follow what's going on. They go with the crowd. They tr- they're trying to figure out what's going on. But really, they are not... Uh, dynamic characters. They are not doing things in here. And this is the one opportunity to me that they're given to do something and they just choose to do nothing. Which, according to Rush, they still have made a choice. But this is you know, the one time where they could affect the, their outcome or someone else's outcome and instead they get screwed by their own inaction. We get a nice touch, too, that, that Stopper adds to the film that's not in the play that kind of adds to that, that they've kind of, that their situation has changed and that they go in and they're overhearing Hamlet and his mother talk about, you know, in their closet scene, whether when Hamlet's accusing her of knowing about, you know, his father being killed and Polonius is there listening and they come up behind Polonius. Now, in the way Hamlet is, is done on stage and in, 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 in the play that it's written, Gertrude starts, you know, to, to get excited and she's murder a king. And then Polonius hears her say that from behind the, the screen where he's eavesdropping. He says, murder, murder. And then Hamlet stabs it. In, in the film, it's Rosecrans and Gildenstern walking up behind him and tapping him on the shoulder, and he turns around and is surprised by them and yells, murder, what? And then Hamlet stabs him. So they have now inserted themselves into the plot of Hamlet 
in a way that was not there in the text or, or there before. So, for, and then and then then you get the blackout, and then they're on the pirate ship. So there is a, a kind of a switch being thrown there, and now all of a sudden they are responsible for something that has happened in the play, which is Polonius's death by surprising him, and then Hamlet heard him and stabbed him. And you don't get that sense at all in the play of Hamlet. They're not responsible for everything; they're only acted upon. So. This whole idea of them stalking around behind the scenes is just, that's that's what makes this for me. I'm trying real hard to think about a movie where we've then gone to a minor character who has then gone back into the major film. I mean, I guess it's kind of like, um, if I'm going to compare it to a book, it, it kind of reminds me of the Ender's Game sequel where it's all told from Bean's perspective instead. So it's, it's an interesting shift that we have, you know, but to, to see what happens to this other character. And I'm sure it probably happens more in literature than it does in film, but it, there's got to be other films that are like this. But this, to me, is, is just so wonderful to be able to see what's not happening on stage. They're insignificant, and, and they're kind of dim in the beginning, as they're kind of, they seem insignificant and dim in the play. But they do gain a kind of, you know, they become more profound and more reflective, and they're, and they're affected by it. I love I love another thing that Stoppard adds to this film is the is Hamlet begins his to be or not to be speech. And it's clever in the beginning the way he does in the film is that instead of saying to be or not to be, Hamlet mouth just mouths to be or not to be and then he says out loud, that is the question. And and Rosencrantz and Gildeson are kind of overhearing the Hamlet do this, and then they go and lie down, and then we get kind of the Rosencrantz and Gildenstern version of Hamlet's soliloquy about death and the great beyond, the undiscovered country. And in their version, it's Rosencrantz talking about what would it be like to be trapped in your coffin, like to be dead and, and, and to be trapped in a box forever, you know? And, and that his version of death is, oh my God, you're trapped in a coffin box forever, and that would be awful. And that's, of course, a parody of what Hamlet's talking about. So, it, so it, it's a funny scene. But then he gets profound, and he has these great lines, and and, and this is directly from the play. But but Stopper has taken it from another part of the play where it's in the midst of the speech, and given it its own little spot in the film, as if Rosencrantz is now giving his own soliloquy, and the language sounds Shakespearean. Whatever became of the moment when one first knew about death? There must have been one. A moment. In childhood, when it first occurred to you that you don't go on forever, must have been shattering, stamped into one's memory. And yet, I can't remember it. It never occurred to me at all. We must be born with an intuition of mortality before we know the word for it, before we know that there are words. Out we come, blooded and squalling, with the knowledge that for all the points of the compass, there's only one direction. And time is its only measure. I mean, that's a great Shakespearean soliloquy that Stoppard has written for Rosencrantz to give, and he's placed it in a film that kind of puts it in a place where it's a replacement for Hamlet's great soliloquy. 
And and that's the best moment of the film for me and watching it now is how beautifully that's done. And those words are just, are, 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 I mean, it's so well written, too, and it encapsulates a lot. And he's put it in the, in the mouth of a, of, a, of a kind of what had previously been this kind of dim-witted character who's now learning and really reflecting. And how does he reflect? He reflects by going into the world of Hamlet and, and within that play. And that's what we do as readers. You want to, you know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to go through a, a period of raising questions about what is life and what's it all about, well, Hamlet's a great text to read to spark those questions in you to, to you know, think about those kinds of issues in your life. You know, you bring up something very interesting with the way that he says that, and he said it's almost Shakespearean. I like the way that they turn on a dime from this really kind of everyday plebeian language into this high Shakespearean language when they're interacting with the characters there. Because you see the characters doing lines from Hamlet, and they're acting out those scenes when, when, Hamlet, when, when Rosa Betts is going to encounter them. But then in their scenes, it's this you know, very colloquial um, exchanges they have. But then later in the film, especially with that little soliloquy, they do get you know, their, their language even becomes more elevated. So the film was Stoppard's only directorial film. He has written a ton and uh, won a bunch of awards. It won the Golden Lion over in in Venice. And uh, it's funny to hear Stoppard talk about it because he talks about how it was up against Goodfellas. And he knew Goodfellas was a better film. And I, I same interview, Ali, how he thought it's, it was so absurd that the Resident Evil is there one that you're over Goodfellas, you know? So a poor Martin Scorsese. I mean, it's one thing to lose to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because there is some precedence there and everything, but to lose the Oscar to Dances with Wolves. <laughs> yep. Boy, man, Scorsese just shoot, got screwed that year. Uh, what was telling, though, to me was that Gore Vidal was the head of the jury that year. And when we talked about Myra Breckenridge on that episode, the book of Myra Breckenridge is kind of like what Stoppard was doing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. There's this whole idea of movies that go on, and each time, because the, the main character, Myra, is kind of zapped into this alternate world of this one particular film and the film happens it repeats it goes back it goes back and and myra is trying to affect what happens in the play she finds that she can move some of the costumes and everything so i think that vidal was really kind of latched on to rosencrantz because of the similarities between this and his own work at least that's my theory anyway so you can do with it as you will we're going to take a break and play an interview with Jim Hunter, the author of Tom Stoppard, A Critical Guide. Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com. Yes, get 50% off when you use the coupon code BOOF at checkout, as in John Wilkes, Powers, or the Projection Booth. But that's not all. You'll also receive three free adult DVDs and free shipping on your entire order. Too good to be true? It's not. Check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Once again, that coupon code is B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV, 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Faye Ray <coughs> Janet Lee Adrian King Heather Langenkamp Amy Steele That weatherman who saw the cockroach that, Oh my god Oh my god Jamie Lee Curtis And you Come on, you know you wanna. Let her rip. There, now don't you feel better. You are now officially a Scream Queen. Come play with the rest of us at www.screamqueens.com. That's Queens with a Z. Or you could subscribe to us on iTunes. Either way. It's going to be fucking fabulous. The Scream Queen's Horror Podcast. It's where horror gets bent. My name is Jim Hunter, and I used to be a teacher of literature. I'm now retired. What got you interested in Tom Stoppard? Well, I'm interested in Tom Stoppard because he's a good writer. I was actually commissioned in 1980 uh, when his career was still just getting going by Faber and Faber, who is his publisher and my publisher, and I was commissioned to write a book on Stoppard. So I wrote a book which was published in 1982, uh, less than halfway through his career, I guess. And I've gone on dealing with him since then. Another one in 2000, another one in 2005, yes. And when did you first run across his work? Oh, when it came out. I don't think I saw the first one. No, I don't think so. It was a play that made a big impact, and I um, would have seen a revival after a couple of years, I should think. But it's a clever title to start with. It's naturally theatrical. It plays on uh, Shakespeare's great play, and it also plays on Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which was a big play of the time as well. It's it's like a witty, a witty sport on those two. Can you tell me about the early drafts of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Wasn't there one where it was them meeting King Lear? He was given a rather generous summer in Europe as a young, still fairly unknown writer, but somebody, Ford Foundation, I think, provided some money for a number of European writers to really have a rather nice freebie in Europe. And, and then he was trying to write something comic. And I think it may have been his agent that came up with the idea of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meet King Lear. <laughs> um, and uh, I think he did do a draft of that kind. Now, had he written plays before that? He'd re- he was beginning to write plays, yes. He'd done the old television play, um, was writing scripts, certainly. He was writing radio plays, probably received quite a good apprenticeship in his mid-twenties, and um, some of which are really very clever radio plays. And they are in print, although, of course, the recordings are not available. So he was busy, yes. He, he decided by 
early 1960s to try to make a go as a writer and particularly of plays. But he also wrote a novel which was published a week before Rosencrantz and was performed. I've only seen the film adaptation of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Can you tell me what are some of his other plays like? Are there common themes that kind of run throughout his work? So you don't really know his work. I only know his film work, really. Well, that's the only film. Oh, of course, he's a very good, he's a very good writer of screenplays for other people. He's done a lot of very successful screenplays. Uh, he's very much a writer for hire in that way. But his own original drama, I think the only film, well, Rosencrantz is his own adaptation, and he, you may know, he directed the film himself, which is unusual, and it lost a lot of money. <laughs> Lost about a million pounds, I think. Uh, but anyway, you were asking about his other work. Well, in the early writing, um, there's a great sense of parody in the early writing. And in the early writing for theatre, a lot of what academics now get nowadays called meta-theatricality, playing on the nature of theatre, which is very much what Rosencrantz does. And that's one reason why it seems to me doesn't work quite so well as a film, because, you know, you're in a different kind of setting. setting. But in the theatre... You've got um, theatre jokes and, and looking at the audience, very much derived from Beckett's Waiting for Godot as well. You know, here we are being bored in the theatre. Why are we paying money to this guy to fill our time? You remember how the play starts with the two guys tossing coins. The audience waits patiently. <laughs> and then one of them says, there's an art of building up suspense. <laughs> and so you feel you're being got at, really. And the theatre laughs. In the, theater, in the cinema, you don't get that audience response in the same way. You might get it, but it's not a shared response in the same way. So how about his, his plays like Jumpers, Travesties, Arcadia? What are, what are those like? Well, they're wonderful. <laughs> but um, the Jumpers is a, a ludicrous farrago of all kinds of things, a murder mystery, um, a professor searching for God, uh, a, a professor who happens to have married a musical comedy actress, um, and crazy things happen. But there's a sort of underlying seriousness as well. He's still a very young writer. He was asked to write a, another play for the National Theatre and uh, for a largest cast, and he enjoyed that. Travis is, is very theatrical. It's, um, it works through the plot of Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest and casts historical characters in the roles. So it's very much preferred to people who know, I think most theatre audiences probably know that play quite well. And then he actually gets more serious in the 1970s. He gradually becomes less interested in just being funny. He, in the 1970s, he becomes political, very anti-Soviet. Um, protests against Soviet uh, authority in Russia and in Czechoslovakia by Arcadia, which is, you know, quite a lot later, 1993, Rosengart is 1966, a lot later, he's in his 50s, and um, it's uh, still a funny play, but really quite a serious one as well about a lot of different things, but about, you might say, about chaos theory as much as other things, new ideas in mathematics and physics. Wonderful play. His best play. Arcadia. And he hasn't filmed it. He says he's hung on to the he's hung on to the film rights of that because he he liked to think that if anybody made a film that he might. But again it's or even more Rosencrantz, it's very much a theatre play. It's not really suited to film to my mind. Yeah, that seemed to be one of the big complaints about the film adaptation of Rosencrantz was just the idea of not having off stage that everything is always in front of the camera that you don't have the the safety of the stage i suppose 
something like that, yes. And it is quite, the original play is, is quite long, quite overlong, perhaps overwordy. He cut it by about half to make the film, but even so, it's not. It just doesn't work in the same way, really. And it's set in um, set in some. Well, it, we go around corridors of a castle, don't we? That kind of thing, I think. And it's it's whereas it's in the original stage play, you feel the characters are very much stuck on stage, and somewhere in the wings is the action of Hamlet going on, and you feel they're trapped. I don't quite get that sense in the film. I'm not really the person to ask about the movie because I haven't watched it for recently. Didn't particularly enjoy it when I did. I suppose that whole idea of being stuck really kind of, uh, again, plays into that Beckett thing that you're talking about. Yes, and um, although Stoppard didn't know it at the time, he said he had no knowledge at the time, Pirandello's play, 1911, Six Characters in Search of an Author. Uh, I don't know how well you know it, but, but you know, six characters turn up in a theatre looking for an author to write their play. And that sense of the unreality and reality of the theatre is very strong. 1911, that play. Or it might be 1921, actually, sorry, but certainly very early. And Stoppard said he didn't know it at the time at all, but it's probably influenced Beckett a bit. And Beckett, of course, they're just waiting for the right thing to happen. The brilliance of this title of Rosengrantz and Stoppard Dead is that it is actually a line from the end of Shakespeare's play. And therefore, uh, and it, anybody who didn't know Shakespeare's play have forgotten that line, the line tells you that these characters are doomed at the start, and they don't know it, and they're searching for their destiny. And so there's a sense in which the play, although humorous, is, is also about human beings being stuck in existence and not knowing what they're doing and fearing their death. And that comes through. It's, it's a young man's response in that way to the fear of death. They're clever undergraduates almost, aren't they? Yeah, clever graduate students. Which I guess fits since they went to school with Hamlet. That's right. <laughs> it feels like Stoppard's life could have been a uh, subject for a play. I mean, he just seemed to have such an incredible life, especially in his younger days, moving from country to country and just all of the craziness that went around with, with yeah, that. Yeah, the infancy. It's just those infant years. and They're terrible, but uh, how much of that he remembers is not sure. But uh, the, the, all, the, all the horrendous events happened in the first few years. When he arrived in England at the age of uh, either seven or eight, he just says he felt he'd settled down, he'd found a home, and he's always remained very pro-English and grateful for England ever since. And superficially, therefore, his life since then has not been uh, particularly remarkable at all. He's had a settled life. He's made a, made a career, and after a while, with Rosencrantz, a very successful career, um, and works very hard. I mean, he's, he's always producing a screenplay, if not a theatre play. And you probably know there's a new theatre play coming out early next year which is pretty good. One of the questions about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that I have is the whole idea of it feels very cyclical. It feels like this is one of the times that these two characters have gone through this play. Do you think that the Player King character, is he aware of his existence as this player versus RNG? That's a good question. Uh, that's a very good question. It's, it's with him that we begin to feel we're getting some kind of knowledge and wisdom. Um, uh, he's, he's certainly old and experienced and uh, sees them as naive. But he's still trapped in the theatre thing as well, isn't he? We have, to, we have to perform. All we can do is perform. That's not the exact words, but that's the kind of gist of what he says. 
So I think he's the nearest we come to getting any sense of uh, outside wisdom, but he's still trapped in the sequence as well. His character seems to say so much about theater in general, especially the whole idea of the actors as prostitutes yes. <laughs> kind of thing yes. that he's doing. Yes, well, he's, he's, um, he's I, I think Stoppard says something somewhere, perhaps in a stage direction, about him being, his whole troupe being pretty run down. They're, they're based on Shakespearean traveling actors, but at pretty low level, um, descended almost to prostitution, yes. Uh, everything has everything's gone amiss for them, really. <laughs> Which is not in the Shakespeare at all. That's um, that's not uh, implied in Shakespeare at all. In fact, Hamlet has a great regard for the travelling actors and thinks they're the tops. But uh, that seemed to be what Stoppard wanted to do, and it does make some humour. Uh, the, the joke, which I think may go back to Shakespeare, but nobody can remember which characters which of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Now, Stoppard actually gives them. The street characters, I mean, they're they're different, but in Shakespeare they're not, and their names have the same syllabic pattern, and there's a moment in the Shakespeare at which the queen or the king seems to get them muddled up, and the queen seems to correct him, and Stoppard picks on that. One says, thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern, and the other one says, thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz, as if, you know, they're both absolutely similar. And in Stoppard, that's, I think the queen is correcting the king because they've got the names wrong. Well, sorry if I'm going on about this, but um, as I'm sure you know, the Stoppard version also has them themselves forget which one they are, which is typical of actors. I mean, that's the sort of thing an actor might well tend to forget. Oh, I'm playing one of those two. Um, because they are a, rather a pair. And, but that's a very theatrical joke to have them themselves almost forget who they are. It happens once or twice in the play, and I imagine it, it is preserved in the film. Yeah, it definitely is, and one of them introduces themselves as the wrong character at one point. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it is, it, it's another theatre joke, really, because everybody muddles them up. I'm curious about some of the other books that you've written. I'm looking at uh, one listing, and it has you writing more than 30 books. Is that right? Uh, about 20, I should think. The thing about going online, you get, you get all sorts of other people with the same name, don't you? I was a novelist when young. Did about seven, well, I did seven novels, which some of which were published in the States and were well received. Uh, that was in the early 60s. I was um, editor of some books for educational use, which are still in print and followed as a 20th century writing. I wrote some critical books on poetry. Um, so I had, although I was still not that old when I was commissioned to the first Stubbard book, I'd got quite a backlog behind me. I was also still teaching full time as well. Um, so yes, there are, I should think I've probably done over 20 books of various kinds. And Stoppard has become the specialism of later years. You probably didn't write this one, but if, if I were you, I might take credit for it. Buffett 101, The Ultimate Guide to a Jimmy Buffett Concert. Uh, no, no, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I would totally take credit for that if I were you. <laughs> no. I can definitely see you doing more of the um, you know, modern poets. or right. uh, Yes, they're all out of print now, but they did nicely. And there's, a, there's an anthology of short stories which has been in print for 50 years, still continuously, which is useful. Sells for schools and so on, yeah. Not probably used much in the States, but um, elsewhere. I'm sorry I've not been more useful about the film. As I say, it's a, it's a, some distance. But um, I certainly recommend to anybody who's interested, stop on further work. And there's a big, a big opus of work 
um, and the, the players, they're all very good. I think Arcadia is the best of the lot. And although they're not, I imagine, mostly in print, he must at some point have been interesting to study as a writer of screenplays because he's a very effective writer of screenplays and a lot of successful movies have been scripted by him. I, I gather he occasionally gets called in just to do the odd tweak of something if somebody else hasn't quite got it, you know. Oh, the best-known movie, of course, is Shakespeare in Love. I imagine you've probably seen that one. That began with somebody else's script and then Stubbard was asked to take it over and it becomes very Stoppardian. And that's a, that is in print and that's great fun. It's kind of sad because none of us have seen the play of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, so I, d- I definitely wanted to reach out to you because you know, you're such mm-hmm. an expert on it because yeah. it's like we really were missing out on so much of it. I was able yeah, to well, hear the would, radio play. Uh, understandably, have most appeal in Britain, I guess, and in British play and so on. And um, there's no question that it relied on a, a strong knowledge of the Shakespeare, which gradually decreases as the years pass. But for example, it was not only performed a lot when it first came out, but it also became a text for schools to study alongside Hamlet. It's an obvious invitation. That fashion has probably passed now. It's probably, probably less well-known to young people now than it would have been 20 years ago. Uh, and also, he himself has gone on to do so much more. The first idea for getting it for a play about Rosengrantz and Gurdenstern came from W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan in the 19th century, and he wrote some comic sketch about Rosengrantz and Gurdenstern. Whether stop, I never knew about that, I don't know. But it wasn't an original idea with him. Yeah, there was um, at least one movie version of that, and I was trying like heck to track it down, but was unable to, because I think it was 1936 or something when it was made. Really? I didn't know that. Interesting. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mr. Hunter. This has Not been sure. a real pleasure talking to you. Cheers. Thanks to Jim Hunter for taking the time to talk to us. We'll have a link over to where you can find out more about him and his work at our website, projection-booth.com. So let's get back to talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. We talked a lot about the, the background and everything in the first half of the show. Did you guys read any of the reviews on this? Uh, it sounded like you had mentioned uh, the Ebert review, Rob. Yeah, I read the Ebert review. I, I went online after I watched the film and I started reading various reviews. And I have to say it's very split. There's people who really like the film. And there's those that feel that it works better as a stage play and not is not very cinematic. And one of the more negative reviews is the Ebert review. 
in which he says, look, I, I saw the film or I saw the play in the 60s and it's quite good. But the problem is, is that it just doesn't work as a film. And he gives his reasonings for why he feels the film isn't all that compelling compared to what you can do on stage. I thought I was going to have that reaction that it would seem kind of stagey and and rewatching it this time, I didn't have that reaction at all. I think it I think it works exceptionally well. You know, I think the changes that Stoppard made really do I mean he's not a compelling film director. You don't get great shots in it and you know, he's he's very kind of bound by his sets as if he's saying, Well, normally I do this on a kind of bare stage, so what can I what what room can I put them in that'll look kind of interesting? But it's not a compelling visual film, but that's okay. It's, you know, it's supposed, films are really supposed to be, you know, people interacting and talking and saying interesting things, and it works fine for that, I think. Well, I, I would compare it, and it might be an odd comparison, but I would say that probably the film that is as talky as this film and not as cinematic is My Dinner with Andre. And what I mean by that is, is it's so bound by the text. It's so bound by people talking to each other that, that I think it actually probably would have been better as a play. My problem with the film watching it, and like I said, I hadn't seen it in years and sadly only got opportunity to watch it once and very busy was that it just didn't like, like there were times like you were talking about sort of it slows down at certain points. Mike, it gets a little draggy. And that stuff kind of killed it for me. It was just sort of like it was hard for me to keep my attention going. And I can understand when reading Ebert's review where he was just sort of like, eh, he just didn't feel that it worked as well as a film. I think that everybody in the film is doing their best. I think that Roth and Oldman and Richard Dreyfus, as I said, everybody's doing their best. But um, it wasn't uh, captivating me as much as I wanted it to. And that's where my, my Shakespeare background and, and, and Hamlet background comes into play is that I'm just I just am so thrilled and compelled by that angle that I kind of never get, you know, uninterested in what they're saying and what they're doing for because even if even if it's not compelling just regular old dramatic film stuff, I hear this commentary on Hamlet so I'm interested. So yeah, I'm so I'm I'm not the person that's you know, that's gonna give a a kind of uh, unbiased review of this of this film at all. That it'll work for me as a film just because of what it's about, and they do it well. To me, it definitely slows down because, like we've mentioned before, the the two things that we've hit on most: the coin tossing, that's the first act; the questions, pretty much the beginning of the second act, right around there, and then you're pretty dead until that third act begins. So there is a lot of stuff where it's like, yeah, th- this isn't necessarily working for me. There's a just a little bit there towards the end. I have to say that uh, Ian Glenn does an amazing job as Hamlet. I would actually like to kind of see him and these other actors. He did Hamlet shortly after that on stage, too. That was very well received. I have to say that Stopper did a, a really good job, and especially I, I imagine that it was the actors as well doing a good job of presenting this material. To me, the worst stage adaptations are the ones that just feel not necessarily confined to the stage. I mean, we can get on my dinner with Andre, but to me, the dialogue feels much more natural than than other films. I mean, I'm thinking of like Six Degrees of Separation, where to me that was the worst adaptation of a stage play because it felt like they were still speaking as a stage play. There's that 
rhythm and that projecting to the back of the audience that just kind of comes with like really bad stage acting. And that's what I was getting a lot during like Six Degrees. I was standing there trying to figure out why there was a statue of a dog who saved lives in the Yukon in the middle of Central Park. And I was standing there trying to puzzle it out. Are you okay? Oh, oh they took my money and my briefcase. I said my thesis is in there. Shoot, bleeding. Shoot isn't bleeding. He's bleeding. Comparing that to something like A Few Good Men, which, you know, it's a courtroom drama, but they take it out of the courtroom here and there. Okay, that one didn't feel like it was stage-bound. That felt like it was very well-written. The performances really, were really good. Same thing with this film. Same thing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It doesn't feel like they have that gravitas to them when they were speaking and you know projecting to that back row and everything. It feels much more conversational, and I think that's one of the things that Stoppard kind of gets from being both a, a screenwriter and a playwriter, is that he knows the difference between those two things. Yeah, and, I, and I'm so pulled in by the Shakespeare stuff, and I'm just noticing a little thing. Did you notice <laughs> the bathhouse scene in that film, and all I could think of was this is a nod to Orson Welles and Othello when they had to come up with the bathhouse scene and Orson Welles and Othello and, and have the murder of uh, uh, um, uh, Michael Cassio in that or Michael Cassio murder someone in that scene, and and um, and and then there's another little detail in the film: the chair that there's this little kind of uh, medieval-looking chair. It's like a little semicircle chair that he sits in, uh, that Richard Dreyfuss' his player character sits in when he's playing Hamlet in the, in the Panama Hamlet in there. And that is the Edwin Booth Hamlet chair that, that if you look up Edwin Booth Hamlet, you'll see him sitting in this kind of chair and lots of different images. And it's all those little Shakespeare details that I see all through this that really, you know, if, if you love Shakespeare and you know Shakespeare well, it's such a joy to watch this film because Stoppard knows all this stuff too and he adds these little touches. And some of the listeners don't know that Stoppard wrote the, the or screenplay or contrib- heavily contributed to did the big rewrite on the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love, which is another film that won Oscars and shouldn't have won them. But, but, the, but Stoppard won the... the the adapted or not adapted screenplay, original screenplay for that film, and I love, I love the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love. Like I think it's, it's really witty and um and and does a lot of fun, interesting things with Shakespeare that Stoppard knows. I was really surprised. I had never seen Shakespeare in Love until yesterday. Really? Yeah. I missed it when it was out, though that music, when the music would swell, I was like, oh my god, I remember all the times they played this at the Oscars back in, what was it, 2003 or whatever. Oh my god, I just, I was wondering while I was watching the film, how much money did Harvey Weinstein spend to buy that film so many Oscars? It was... Nothing. I mean, not that it is an Oscar, but I, but I love the film. And if I could just recast Gwyneth Paltrow in that film, I would love it to death. Ben Affleck, he holds All his the own, man. Performances in it, and and but the script in general is just real. I love the script for Shakespeare in Love because it's clearly written by someone who understands Shakespeare and and can make all kinds of. And it can do all kinds of interesting and funny things with it because he knows it. I was so shocked 
that the Jeffrey Rush character didn't fall in love with her nursemaid kind of character. I was just like, oh, for sure there's going to be like the double thing going on here, but no, that didn't happen. And just, yeah, that, I was very surprised by, it's a good movie, but it's not a great movie. And then seeing some of the films that it was up against and everything, it's like, really? I mean, I won't say that Saving Private Ryan is a great film. Lop off the beginning and end of that film, or the end of the film, and you're we're talking, but that whole schmaltzy ending thing that was just garbage. But you know, the the first twenty minutes, give that an Oscar. Yeah, I mean that's kinda how I felt about Shakespeare in Love. I saw it in the theater and haven't seen it since. I just was like it's it's light entertainment and there's no reason why Judy Dench should have received an Oscar for being yeah. on screen for about thirty five seconds when everyone knows that that was the consolation prize for the film the year before that she didn't get it for. I thought it was a consolation prize, like in advance for not getting it for Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's me. One good thing. So we've got one strike over here having to watch Shakespeare in Love. But the bonus for me was finally sitting down and watching an adaptation of Waiting for Godot. Holy shit, that was awesome. I had such a good time doing that. I watched the Michael Lindsay Hogg version from uh, 2001, and that was great. I am so glad that I finally saw that play. I've seen that play on stage and just pulled over by it. The whole time I'm watching it, I'm just like, why didn't I buy a ticket to New York and go see this thing with Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart? Oh, my God. I th- It seems like they were made for those roles. And I'm pretty sure I know which one was playing Vladimir and which one was Estragon, even though I didn't ever see them or know which one. But I'm just like, that for sure was McKellen and that for sure was Stewart. <laughs> Did you watch Waiting for Guffman? I saw Waiting for Guffman years ago. Yeah, I haven't seen that since the theater. Yeah, I will go back. I'll watch uh, Best in Show all the time, but Waiting for Guffman is not one that I go back to very often. Which brings us back to my dinner with Andre action figures. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Ed, you've got kids. I'm not sure how old they are, but were they into The Lion King? Yes, definitely. And I even showed them a scene from this today, from Rosemary and Gildenstern. I was wondering how they would react to this. Um, and I showed them a scene. Uh, I showed them the question scene, the tennis scene. And I'm like, oh, you guys are like, this is really funny. And they don't know Hamlet, you know. So I'm thinking, I wanted to gauge the reaction on the question scene. And um, they didn't seem to think it was funny. I remember you laughed out loud kind of a couple times, but she seemed to be just laughing more at the, like, this is ridiculous kind of thing. And... Um, uh, my nine-year-old, who's, who's also a very intelligent nine-year-old, reads well, and, and they know Shakespeare pretty well. Um, she just had this confused look the whole time, and I was like, you know, I, I told her it was a comedy, but I think she thought it was a confusity, um, and uh, they didn't really react well. But Lion King, yes, they love The Lion King. So go ahead. What's The Lion King like? Have you ever seen The Lion King one and a half? They have, but I don't think I have. It's very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but not nearly as good. It's basically a retelling of 
the Lion King first movie, but they go back and they show, what is it, Timon and Pumbaa or whatever? Uh-huh. Like, those characters before they met, and then they kind of meet up with the movie. At one point, they meet up when the baboon is holding up Simba at Pride Rock. And so, of course, I'm thinking of Life of Brian with, you know, what did he say? You know, Blessed are the cheesemakers? <laughs> We gotta go back to the beginning of the story. We're not in the beginning of the story. Yes, we were, the whole time. Ah, yeah, but they don't know that. (laughs) Then why don't we tell them our story? (laughs) Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we tell them our story? Oh, I like the sound of that. A little backstage tour. Take them behind the scenes for a revealing and intimate look at the story within the story. Because what they don't know is how we really were there, even though they didn't know we were there, you know? Couldn't have said it better myself. And then occasionally they'll run into various parts of the movie, very, very similar, uh, obviously. Um, but yeah, they do that, you know? I mean, Lion King being, you know, inspired by Hamlet and that they would do that kind of take on it. That's, uh, that's pretty clever. It's clever for Disney. <laughs> it's clever, but I can't recommend it because there's too many just insipid songs that I was just like, yeah, this is like the B team or maybe the C team writing these songs. And then no uh, discussion of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead would be complete without us talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are undead. I was hoping for better things than that. I was hoping that was, uh, and I, I saw that a while ago when it first came out. I thought it would at least be enjoyable. And boy, that was just, yeah, no, I won't get that hour and a half back. I think I even fast forwarded through some of it. It's only fair. I fast forwarded through. I watched through the whole film. Case. Some of it I watched, you know, times twenty four with no sound. But you know, because I like the whole zombification thing of, of of classic books and all that. I think that's fun. I mean, I kind of enjoy that kind of stuff. I think I'm the only, you know, guy. I'm the only one of all my friends who liked Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and and still look forward to a movie of it. But yeah, that one I thought was pretty uh, lame. Yeah, it's no warm bodies, you know. What warm bodies was to Romeo and Juliet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are undead is not to Hamlet. This is it's not very good. So I can't recommend that one. But go and I would definitely recommend Waiting for Godot, and that's one that we should all everybody should see, I think. So you so you can't not recommend it enough. <laughs> Correct. I think. Your logic is is confusing me. I'm confounded now. Well, you know what I have to say to that? What's that? Heads. Heads. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. For centuries, he's been called the greatest villain of all time. Now, a motion picture tells his story as it has never been told before. United Artists Pictures presents... Now is the winter of our discontent. Richard III. He was the dark heart of a royal family. I have too long borne your blunt upbraidings and bitter scoff. Who would stop at nothing to take the throne. I see the ruin of my I can smile and murder while I smile. His ambition is masked in passion. Did you not kill my husband? Your beauty would make me undertake the death of all the world. 
His hatred is disguised as love. I will send you to my brother Richard. Your brother Richard hates you. Chop off his head. <laughs> his brutality is hidden in nobility. I've no more sons of the royal blood for you to slaughter. You have a daughter. Now, one man's evil. You came on earth to make the earth my hell. Will conquer all. Tempted by the devil. Yes, if the devil tempts you to do good. Richard the Third. That's right. We continue our coverage of Shakespeare September with Richard Lon Crane's version of Richard the Third. We'll be talking to Mr. Lon Crane as well as an expert on the real Richard the Third. You know what? Probably wasn't quite the bastard you think he was. And we'll be joined again by our good friend who you just heard a few seconds ago, Mr. Ed Pettit, to discuss this modern interpretation of the most villainous kind. So, Ed, back on the show again. We had you on Titus. Uh, before that, uh, we had you on Martin, and I forgot, Near Dark. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, anything to talk about and on the, oh, I don't know, two weeks since we talked to you last? Uh, no, uh, just, uh, you know, doing my literary things. I'm actually in a, in a murder mystery play at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion coming up in October, and I'll start rehearsing for that on the weekends uh, in September. So, you know, I get to do a little acting as well occasionally. And Ed will be performing at the Ha Ha Club on Exit 27 from the I-51. That's right, right next to the IHOP. Yeah, doing Shakespeare jokes. <laughs> I could see you with your hands kind of doing that, like Howie Mandel thing, you know? That's what, yeah. I, that's what I look like in front of class. And, you know, to be or not to be. They yeah. don't laugh either, my students. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can sort of see, like, Ed has a nasty version of Shakespeare quotes, sort of like uh, old Dice Clay's um, nursery oh. rhymes bit. <laughs> yeah. All told in iambic pentameter. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess it would be better to be rhyme couplets in that case. Except since it's uh, Shakespeare and we're going to use old uh, uh, language, it's, of course, body and ribald tales as opposed to just being uh, <laughs> offensive. It takes like you know a few more minutes for kids to get it because they have to reinterpret it from the old English and everything. Well, thanks, Ed, for coming on the show. I always said great pleasure. I, I love talking about these kinds of movies and, and anytime. I really look forward to talking about Richard III. Yeah, me too. This will be good. Hey, and uh, thanks to our special guests for coming on the show, and thank you for listening to another episode of The Projection Booth. Like actors who are nothing without an audience, we are nothing without our listeners. The more we have, the more powerful we become. So please spread the word, give us reviews on iTunes, and go bid the soldiers shoot. 
a set of high getting ideas Ain't nothing but a fool to live like this Out all night and running wild Woman sitting home with a month old child Dang me, dang me They ought to take a rope and hang me High from the highest tree Woman, would you weep for me? Sitting around drinking with the rest of the guys Six rounds bought and I bought five Spent the groceries and half the rent Like $14.27 So dang me, dang me They ought to take a rope and hang me High from the highest tree Woman, would you weep for me? Say roses are red and violets are purple And sugar's sweet and so is maple circle And I'm the seventh out of seven sons My baby was a pistol, I'm a son of a gun I said, dang me, dang me They ought to take a rope and hang me High from the highest tree Woman, would you weep for me? Be moved to re-examine his face. If in nothing else, at least in the law of probability, 
pets and the laws of nature generally, though not pets the law of gravity. Getting a bit of a bore, isn't it? <laughs>